Well, it is now classic book, The Grace Awakening. And if you have not read that book, I would encourage you to do so by Chuck Swindoll. And it's an old book now, but uh, full of some really good, good stuff. But Charles Swindoll writes these words. He says, I vividly remember my last spanking. How many of you remember your last spanking? It was on my 13th birthday, he said. As a matter of fact, having just broken into the sophisticated ranks of the teen world, he says, I thought I was something on a stick. My father wasn't nearly as impressed as I was with my great importance and newfound independence. I was lying on my bed. He was outside the window on a muggy October afternoon in Houston, weeding the garden. And he said, Charles, come out and help me weed the garden. And I said something like, no, it's my birthday. Remember? Well, my tone was sassy and my deliberate lack of respect was eloquent. I knew better than to disobey my dad, but after all, I was the ripe old age of 13. Well, he set a new 100-meter record that autumn afternoon. <laughs> he was in the house and all over me, he said, like white on rice, spanking me all the way out into the garden. And as I recall, I weeded until the moonlight was shining on the pansies. <laughs> but that same night, he took me out to a surprise dinner. He gave me what I deserved earlier. Later, he gave me what I did not deserve. The birthday dinner was grace. Grace. Think about that word, the concept. Next to Jesus, I think grace is by far my favorite word in the Bible. God's unmerited favor toward us. Every true believer in this room knows that experience. We understand, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, something of the concept of getting what we do not deserve. My fear, however, is that we have become so enamored with grace, we've become so accustomed to the gift of forgiveness, so enthralled with the benevolence of a loving and patient God, that we have virtually ignored and conveniently forgotten the importance of our obedience to his revealed word. Listen, the availability of God's grace does not remove the responsibility of our obedience. Let me ask you this question this morning. As a believer in Christ, would you consider yourself an obedient child? Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he continues, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, you might think that that is an Old Testament concept, but this is New Testament scripture. 
The availability of God's grace does not remove the responsibility of our obedience. I want to make a very simple statement about Peter's challenge here this morning. I wonder how many of us will grasp it. The key to holiness is obedience. Pretty simple statement. Psalm 119 verse 9 says it like this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. But unfortunately, Christians today are more concerned about walking in victory than in obedience. Consequently, our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than it is God-centered. In the pursuit of holiness, Jerry Bridges writes, quote, we are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that it grieves the heart of God. God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. Obedience is oriented toward God. Victory is oriented toward self. Bridges continues, until we face this attitude and deal with it, we will not consistently walk in holiness. Now, friends, God surely wants us to experience victory in our lives. There's no question about that. Victory over sin, victory over the lure of the world towards sin, the temptations of our flesh, and the schemes of the devil. He wants us to be victorious over those things and to walk in victory over those things. But spiritual victory is the result of personal obedience. Let me ask you another extremely important question, and it might be a little convicting to us. Are you more concerned with victorious living than humble submission to God? If so... You're on dangerous ground. I state that categorically. You're on dangerous ground because God's ultimate pleasure in us is rooted in our humble obedience to Him. He's not satisfied with a heart that is committed only to partial obedience, but one rather whose attitude is that of total loyalty to Him, even though we are far from perfect. Listen to what I'm saying now. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying and misapply it. Perfection is not possible this side of heaven for any man or woman. But a heart that is devoted entirely to the pursuit of Christ is what God the Father seeks. Not perfection, progress. The pursuit of Christ. Someone once said, devotion is not a thing that passes, that comes and goes, as it were, but is something that is habitual, fixed, permanent, that extends over every instant of life and regulates all of our conduct. Eugene Peterson once referred to that kind of an attitude as a long obedience in the same direction. You've heard me quote that phrase before. A long obedience in the same direction. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. That's what God's looking for. Now let me ask you again, as a believer in Christ, would you consider yourself an obedient child? We need to get a better grasp on the importance of our obedience to God. I think we all do. Because the fact is, half-hearted devotion eventually leads to wholehearted rejection. 
Let me say that again. Half-hearted devotion eventually leads to wholehearted rejection. Now, I didn't realize how much I didn't realize about that concept until rediscovering a chapter in the life of Saul, King Saul. If there was ever a lesson that could awaken our sense of what it means to be truly devoted to God and warn us of the consequences of half-hearted obedience, this is it. So turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. And at the risk of really extending this, I'm going to read some of these verses to you so you get the context of what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks. 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tel Aim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But, you always got to watch out for that word, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Let's just stop there for a moment. That's enough. 
John Piper once said these words, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That is the basis for our obedience. God's glory. We obey him not legalistically because we have to, nor in order to gain his approval because we'll never get it by obedience alone. It's only through Christ. But because it is our passion to obey him. It should be if Christ lives in us. Because we are totally fulfilled when we do it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Because it is the truest expression of genuine faith and love for God. That's why we obey Christ's commands. The apostle John expressed it this way in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 3. He said, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Obedience, someone said, is the irrepressible public relations project of those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Our obedience actually draws people to glorify God. That's what it says in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our obedience draws people to glorify God. But that was not the case in Saul's life, was it? Not here. Again, if you go back to the first three verses of chapter 15, you find out what just exactly what the word of the Lord to Saul was. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to these words of the Lord. In other words, obey them. Thus says the Lord, I will punish Amalek and you will be my tool to do it. Now go and strike Amalek, utterly destroy everything, all that he has. Do not spare him. Put to death everybody Everything utterly destroy them. That was God's command. And we're going to get into why that was in a minute. But here we have a serious commission for Saul. And a serious commission demands specific consideration. That's the first thing that you need to know. When you're commissioned of the Lord... A serious commission demands specific consideration. At this point in Saul's life, there was serious question as to his loyalty to the Lord. Early in his leadership, Saul was characterized by things like humility, aggressiveness, and commitment to the Lord, which ultimately resulted in great personal, spiritual, and national victories for Israel. The beginning of Saul's career as king. However, in the aftermath of success, these character traits degenerated into things like personal ambition, moral recklessness, and spiritual defection. John Davis put it this way. He said, he was a man of talent and ability, but these were an asset to his leadership only as they were committed to God and brought into conformity to his will. Hear what he's saying there? Giftedness, talent, ability. These are all assets 
to leadership, and God puts leaders in place, but they're only assets as they are committed to God and submitted to his will. That is a serious lesson for every single one of us, me included, in this room. Our abilities, our gifts, our talents and positions do not guarantee blessing. They do not guarantee success. In fact, without obedience to God as the driving motive in our lives, those things will actually be counterproductive to our spiritual progress. In chapter 13, Saul made a major mistake that initiated this decline and ultimate demise. Saul's blatant disobedience indicated that his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Turn back just a couple of chapters here to 1 Samuel 13. And we begin to see this demise. Actually, the first place we see it is in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 8. This is the commission. And you shall go down before me, Samuel says to Saul, to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Okay? That's the commission. That commission demanded of Saul serious consideration. Now skip ahead to chapter 13, verse 8. So Saul's at Gilgal, and it says in verse 8, Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. Underline that line, because that's important. So Saul said... Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. That's not what Samuel told him to do. Samuel said, wait for me. I'll come to you and show you what you're supposed to do. Saul did okay by waiting, but when Samuel didn't show up, he was getting a little antsy. Why? Because the people were scattering from him. He was losing control. He was trying to save face. So he did something he shouldn't have done. Offered a burnt offering. And verse 10 says, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Oh, isn't that convenient? And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? Don't you love this about prophets? They know what you did before you even tell them that you did it. And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So, listen to this now, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Like, I didn't want to sin, but I had to make myself do it because you weren't here. That's really what he's saying, right? Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. 
You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You see, Saul applied situational ethics instead of biblical obedience. He rationalized his disobedience away and failed to admit that he had done anything wrong. Does that sound familiar? How quick are we to rationalize our disobedience? How many hoops do we jump through and what kind of spiritual gymnastics do we perform in order to justify sometimes our blatant violation of the word of God? How quick am I to admit that I have sinned? How quick are you? Mark Buchanan, great author, writes, I learned a valuable life lesson when I was, oh, about seven. He says, my mother stepped out to go somewhere, the store for milk or a friend's house for coffee or maybe for a walk to clear her head. I don't remember. She asked my nine-year-old brother and me to look after things. Mother told us specifically, unambiguously, not to touch the chocolate cake that she had just made. She could not have been more clear about that. I heard her, he writes. And I also heard what she didn't say. She never said we couldn't help ourselves to the chocolate cake's chocolate icing. <laughs> she clearly never said that. Cake, after all, even a child knows this, is a substance made from flour, sugar, eggs, and a few other powdery things all mixed and baked. Cake, strictly speaking, is not icing. <laughs> icing is what you put on the cake once it cools. Cake is cake with or without the icing. <laughs> so clearly hearing what mother said and what she didn't say, I helped myself to the icing. I began by scooping with one finger the daubs of icing spattered around the foil base that the cake sat on. This was, now here comes the rationalization, when you think about it, a favor I was doing my mother. <laughs> I was cleaning up after her, but the taste of that confection in my mouth wet my appetite, and I proceeded then to scoop with two fingers the rim of the frosting that dropped down the cake's sides and bulged thick at its base. My fingers left there a double-grooved gouge. I was just getting started. <laughs> when I'd finished, the icing was pitted and chopped as if a dog had mauled it. I got found out, of course. I don't remember what consequences I was made to suffer. I do remember, though, my mother scolding me to the effect of this. Don't touch the cake means don't touch the cake. Any of it, all of it, the whole thing. <laughs> and he says, I gravitate toward minimalism when it comes to obedience. <laughs> my default is... Now, listen to this. 
What's the least I'm required to do and the most I can get away with? Let's strike a chord. Show me a command, he says, and I will show you wondrous interpretive tricks to sidestep its sharpest edges and dance around its outer boundaries. Welcome to the culture of America. Welcome to the culture of contemporary American church. The problem, though, he says, is that minimalist obedience is really no obedience at all, is it? In chapter 13 here, Saul failed his first test as a follower of God, the test of spiritual integrity. His half-hearted devotion was exposed, and the result was that his kingdom would not endure. And in chapter 15, our chapter, his second test revealed not only a lack of moral qualifications, but resulted in a total disqualification from him as a leader of the nation. Not only would his kingdom not endure, but his kingship would be stripped away as well. Saul's commission was clear in the first three verses. Wipe out the Amalekites. Don't spare anything. Don't spare anyone. The term utterly destroy means devote to destruction or place under the ban. In the Old Testament, this happened on a number of occasions. The Lord placed certain cities and peoples and items and animals under the ban and were to be destroyed as part of the Lord's decree of judgment upon idolatrous nations that did not follow God. Failure to comply resulted in serious consequences upon the nation of Israel, i.e., remember Joshua when they first got to Ai and Achan stole the bacon? <laughs> took the gold, took the cloak, hid it in his tent. What ended up happening because of that? Well, the nation fell before Ai. Small little town, basically, compared to Jericho, which they just had victory over. That whole family, Achan and his whole family, ended up dying because of that. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 6 and 7. Let me give you a brief history on the Amalekites here so you get some context here of why God said to destroy them. In Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, as Israel made their way out of Egypt in the Exodus, they were ruthlessly attacked by the Amalekites, arguably the worst of all the Canaanites, which God said you're going to destroy. Descendants of Esau's grandson, they were a brutal and a vicious people whose war efforts were not only aggressive but absolutely cruel. God gave Israel victory over them, yet there were many, many tragic losses. God never forgot the Amalekites' mistreatment of his people. In fact, he issued a decree of eventual judgment in Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning in verse 17. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way, God says, when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and cut off all those who were lagging behind, and they had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. That's God's words in Deuteronomy. Well, the time had come, and God set Saul to execute his judgment. 
And the command was issued, utterly destroy in verse 3. In other words, don't touch the cake means don't touch the cake. Any of it, all of it, the whole thing. Saul, we must ask, what part of utterly destroy didn't you understand? By the way, this command is not to be viewed as the barbaric slaughter of innocent people on the part of God. Some argue today that the Old Testament is full of God issuing commands to wipe out people for no apparent reason whatsoever. How can a loving God issue such decrees? Well, the fact is that the commands of God are fully justified. We must realize that, number one, destruction of Canaanite cities was based on spiritual not political or military reasons. That's number one. God seeks to maintain a spiritual purity among his people and the judgment served as visible warnings that Israel should not follow the practices of the unbelieving nations lest she be destroyed as well. That's in Deuteronomy and in Joshua. We should pause here and take serious notice of that. When God pronounces judgment on these Canaanite cities, it wasn't based on willy-nilly it was a spiritual thing, not a political or a military thing. Number two, God is not only a God of love, but he's a God of justice. He is completely holy and just. And many of these nations maintained utterly abhorrent practices and sinful behavior. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Think idolatrous worship practices of these Canaanite uh, nations, including child sacrifices and temple prostitution, Baal worship, etc., 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 totally despising and rejecting the revealed character of God, which warranted God's judgment. Number three, the reason for these destructions are clearly stated in Scripture. They're not haphazard. They're not unjustified. And then four, and this is the big one, the most horrendous, and brutal judgment upon sin imaginable. God performed upon his own son, Jesus, at the cross. So you and I would be spared from it. And that's why we don't see this stuff going on today. Because Jesus has taken the judgment for our sin. That is not the action of a cruel God, but the mercies of a gracious Savior. Rather than being in conflict with the New Testament principles of grace, these commands illustrate the immensity of God's holiness, his justice, and his patience with us. Again, author John Davis writes in his book, The History of Israel, God is a holy God. He demands that sin be punished. The Lord reserves the right to punish sin wherever it is found. And he may act then in the immediate destruction of a city or in the condemnation of the sinner at final judgment. It is only by the mercy and by the grace of God that any sinner is permitted to live his life completely. In fact, he could punish sin upon the committing of the first act. Take the life of that individual and still remain 
perfectly righteous and a holy God. God has that prerogative. Praise God he doesn't do it. But he did it to his son who didn't deserve one ounce of it. Saul had a divinely ordained serious commission here in chapter 15. He didn't consider the consequences of not adhering to the specific details of God's plan. He defaulted to his own ideas as many of us do and failed to fully carry out God's desires. So what is it that God has commissioned you to do specifically that you have not considered carefully enough? Are you seriously obeying God's specific commands? Let's say to be a a devoted husband, a biblical wife, a witness for Christ, a leader at your office, a good parent, a faithful member of this church, you name it. What is it that God's commissioned you to do? Are you living in obedience to God's word? Am I, as it relates to the use of our finances, our spiritual gifts, our time, our talents, our relationships, the putting off of a sinful lifestyle? See, the word of God has specific commandments in each of these areas that we are to carefully consider and follow. Are you? Because a serious commission demands specific consideration. Secondly, look at the selfish concession here. Because selfish concessions result in serious compromises. That's beginning in verse 4. So Saul summoned the people, numbered them. Then he went to Amalek, set an ambush in the valley. Long story short, Saul defeated the Amalekites, captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive in verse 8, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good. They were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Basically, Saul took into his hands the responsibility to modify what God had commanded. Verse 9 is the clincher. It says at the end of verse 9, and they were not willing to destroy them utterly. Note those four words. They were not willing. They were not willing. Those are crucial words. Because when the people saw the fatness of the animals and the good spoil and Saul realized that to capture Agag alive and parade him in front of the people would boost his public opinion, he conceded to spare them instead of utterly destroy them. In effect, he was attempting to enhance his own glory and in the process though, He compromised his integrity. You might say, how do you know that Saul had a selfish motive here? Aren't you reading into the text? No, it's reading the black and white of the text. 
because verse 12 clearly reveals Saul's heart. Look at what it says in verse 12. Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, what's it say? He set up a monument for himself. And, de and then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Friends, you don't mess with God's glory because he's not going to share it. He will not share his glory. Please hear me. It's the small, little, selfish concessions that end up leading people to huge spiritual compromises and far-reaching consequences, as, we, as we're going to see. Every Christian leader that has ever been disqualified from the ministry, whether through an illicit affair, a lust for material wealth, or through spiritual slothfulness in the ministry, has said the same thing. They said, I should have set up boundaries earlier in the small things. They all say that. So what kind of boundaries have you set up to protect yourself from compromise? You see, serious disobedience brings certain disqualification. Saul made a selfish concession here. He ended up involved in a devastating state of spiritual compromise, and he never recovered from it. Listen to the heaviness of the next few verses. You can almost feel the weight of them pressing in on you in, chapter in verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. God regretted that he had made Saul king. You understand how serious that is? King James Version says, probably uses the word repented in there. But I, I need to tell you that in the original language, that is not the usual Old Testament word for repent. So that's a kind of a bad English translation. No, literally the root word that is used here means to breathe deeply. In other words, it means to be grieved. What it's saying here is that God was grieved that he had made Saul king. Now, does that mean that God made an error in judgment when he made Saul king and then changed his mind about it later? Not on your life. Look at verse 29. Skip ahead. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. No, God's repentance or regret here or grief here refers to his deep sorrow over Saul's disobedience. He grieved over the fact that Saul's heart to obey him had changed. That Saul started out with a heart to obey him, but then all of a sudden he got, he got full of himself and he started to disobey God. See what happens? Men change, God grieves. Just like it says in the, in the New Testament, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can grieve the heart of God when we turn and disobey him. God's bold statement in verse 11 here is one of the greatest deterrents to compromise for me in the ministry as well as in my Christian life, and I hope it is for you too. 
I never want to hear the words, and I hope you never want to hear the words from our Father's mouth, I regret that I have made, you fill in the blank. I don't ever want to hear the words from Jesus, I regret that I made Russ a pastor. Or I regret that I have made, you fill in your name, whatever it is that God has called you to do. Scares me to death. Ought to scare you. How would you feel if you were to hear the words, I regret that I have made so-and-so a husband. I regret that I've made him, her a wife or him a father or a mother or a teacher or a mentor or a ministry leader for he or she has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. That's serious. You don't... Saul didn't start out intending to disobey, nor do we. He, like us, was on fire with an uncompromising zeal for the Lord when he started out his ministry. Unfortunately, as Michael Griffith points out, enthusiasm is a lot easier than obedience. Enthusiasm is easier than obedience. We, we've got to watch out for the little concessions that lead us into great compromises. And only you can identify what those are for you. See, God wants our obedience. Total. In every area of our lives. Small or great in the secular or the marketplace as well as the sanctuary of the church. That's why it is an utterly ludicrous argument to say that what happens in a person's marriage, sex life, financial dealings, or home life has no bearing on his ability to fulfill his role as a leader, whether in the pulpit or the presidency. It's ludicrous because God wants an undivided heart. You can't separate it. It matters. It matters immensely. Integrity means doing the right thing no matter who is watching and especially if no one's watching. And God makes no exceptions to this rule. He wants our obedience without compromise. And the truth is, is that our sin will eventually find us out. Sinful compromise begets spiritual confrontation. And that's precisely what happened to Saul. And that's where we're going to go next time. I have so much more here for today's message, but I'm just going to end it here because there's a lot here. But the good news in all of this is that Christ came to take the burden of our sin. So as we close this morning, we, we need to really truly examine the loyalty of our hearts before Christ. Do we really desire to obey him? It's one thing to fall, to mess up. I think we really got to get below that. We got to get down to the root of what's in the inner man, what's in the heart. Do you desire to obey him? In all that he asks. Or are we reserving certain areas of our lives that we will not give over? What is it that you're holding back this morning? 
Is there a sin that you need to confess maybe? Do you need to begin by obeying the most basic command? And here it is. Admit sin. Believe in and receive Jesus Christ. And trust him as Lord. If you haven't done that, then you haven't done the most basic thing that God is calling you to do. That's the commission. God's greatest pleasure is that you hear and obey the gospel of his son, Jesus. 1 John chapter 1, we'll close with some scriptures. Beginning in verse 5. This is the message that we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that great? If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Don't be like Saul. Don't say that you have no sin. Admit you have sin because we're all sinners. If you don't, then the truth's not in you. But John says if we confess our sins, that just means to admit it, come clean, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I love this. My favorite verses in the Bible. Romans 8, 1. But therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we come clean with the Lord and accept the sacrifice that he made on the cross believe that he was raised from the dead for our life, we're forgiven. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't end up like Saul, which we're going to see more next week. Wholehearted obedience results in God-honoring glory. Why? Because he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Hard lessons to learn from some leaders in the Old Testament. But you left them there, Lord God, to teach us, to train us, so that we might not do the same things that they did. That we might learn from their mistakes. And so I pray, our Father, that your Holy Spirit would equip us and uh, make these words come alive in us. That they might lead us as a tutor to Christ, who is our strength. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.